0: I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. That's the passage we're going to be looking at together this evening. And uh, I need to just give you a little bit of background to how we come to be at this part. This morning we were looking at the first part. We did half of the first part, really. Matthew 18 is um, the fourth main teaching block or recorded teaching of Jesus that Matthew incorporates into his gospel. There are five that he includes all together. The first is the Sermon on the Mount, with which you'll be familiar, which is really setting out the values of the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, the second main teaching block comes around Matthew chapter 10 of chapter 9, Matthew chapter 10, which is really about discipleship in the Kingdom. And the third main block is Matthew chapter 13, which we were thinking about a few weeks ago, which is really about how the Kingdom of Heaven works. And Matthew chapter 18 is one of those Uh, teaching sections in Matthew's gospel that's recorded of Jesus teaching his disciples. And it's really about relationships within the kingdom of heaven. And what we want to do this evening is to look at the second half of the chapter from verse 21 to verse 35. Um, We we see the, the signs that Matthew gives us of how he's setting this up because, for example, when you come to verse 1 of chapter 19, if you look at that, that's a little phrase that is used at the end of each of the teaching blocks to say, right, we're moving on. That little phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and you see this five different times in Matthew's gospel, and it marks the end of that little section that he's been talking about. It's one of those little markers in the text for us. So that's what's happening here in Matthew chapter 18. This morning, Trevor Warner was with us. Trevor is one of our members. If you don't know Trevor, you'll see his picture on the back wall. If you take a look on the way out, it's in the middle on the right-hand side. He works for an organization called OM, and he works in Russia and St. Petersburg. And we were just catching up with uh, Trevor and what's been happening to him. Uh, And in the course of our catching up, I was asking him some questions about adjusting to life in Russia and what were the things he noticed, what were the things that were radically different. And he talked about relationships and the way people value relationships and the way relationships work as being different and something that required a bit of adjusting and getting used to. And essentially that's what's happening here in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is setting out about how relationships in the kingdom of heaven work. And it's going to require change because that's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples at the beginning of chapter 18 the disciples came to Jesus and asked "Who then, uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and in verse 3 he says to them I tell you the truth unless you change and that's part of the theme of Matthew chapter 18 there are attitudes and approaches to life that we grew up with they're part and parcel of our background Uh, they're the way we're taught to think When we become Christians, when we're converted to Jesus Christ and become his disciples, there's a lot of other mini-conversions need to take place too. Conversions about the way we think about things, the way we do things, the way we see things. Because conversion to Jesus Christ and seeking to live under God's authority in the kingdom of heaven means change. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. And that's part of the context in which we turn to look at verses uh, 21 to 35. This morning we looked at a few of the introductory sections and we'll finish off that first part of Matthew 18 later on in the month of December. But now what I want to do is just to read the passage to you. And bear in mind, this is what's happening. Jesus is talking about how relationships are, are different or reordered or should be within the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. I want to divide this passage up into three sections. I want to take the first two verses together, first of all. That's verse 21 and 22. Then I want to take the larger section, verse 23 to 34. And then I want to take the last verse and look at this uh, teaching of Jesus in these three sections. The first two verses, 21 and 22, I have a a sort of title in my head for those few verses. And the, the title that I have in my head is the title, Consistency. And I'll explain that. Last weekend we had our church weekend and Sean Mullen from Dublin West Church was there and he was taking the weekend for us, which was great. And Sean has the capacity to ask some interesting questions, questions that sort of come at you from the side and you're not quite ready for them. And one of the questions he asked in one of the sessions was, what worries you most about Jesus? What worries you most about Jesus? There were a number of questions that Sean asked over the weekend that I had to think about, but that one I didn't. I know what worries me most about Jesus. It's that he's going to keep on going. For me, one of the most stretching things is knowing that every morning, every morning in life, when I get up, Jesus is up before me. He's waiting, and it's as if he's saying, right, let's go. There's times, if I can use the phrase, when that just does my head in. It's as if, you know, there's no let-up on this journey. There's no days off. Now, I'm not cracking up for need of a holiday. I'm not angling for a holiday here, no. Because I know that Jesus is concerned about rest and those things. I see him doing that with the disciples in the Gospels. He's concerned about our physical needs and our emotional needs. And he says to the disciples, you know, come, let's go apart somewhere and rest for a while. So don't get me wrong. And it's not the fear of activity and work. I'm not afraid of that either. It's the recognition That the principles by which we live as Christians are non-negotiable. And they're always being worked at. And they're always the priority. There's no luxury of self-indulgence or selfishness. Or having a good lashing out at others when it suits me and all the rest of it. Every day, work, rest and play. This is the way it is to be for the Christian. And that's the thing that worries me most about Jesus. I know it's true. I know that's the way it's going to be. But if you ask me the question... That's the thing that worries me most. It's that every morning he's up ahead of me and he's saying, come on, let's go. I have a feeling that it's something like that that's prompting Peter's question. When he comes to Jesus in verse 21 and he says to Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother? I don't think Peter was having a difficulty with Andrew. I don't think there was a brotherly spat going on at this particular point. I don't think there was a particular score to be settled. In fact, I'm not even sure that having to forgive someone was particularly within Peter's radar at that particular moment. I think what's been happening is Peter has been listening to Jesus spelling out the standards for relationships in the community of the kingdom of heaven amongst his disciples. And I think Peter's a bit gunked. I think he's taken it. And he's working at it. I mean, he was one of the ones who came and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is, you've got to change. You've got to be converted, Peter, and think differently. You know, status doesn't matter in the kingdom of heaven. And I think Peter's been listening to all that's happened. It's recorded for us in the first part of chapter 18, and he's away processing it. And one of the issues that is in his head that he's processing is the issue of forgiveness. And I think Peter's just working out the implications of Jesus' teaching. What would this look like in other areas of life, in other things that Jesus hasn't specifically mentioned? And I think he's a bit freaked by some of the implications. Now, apparently, in Peter's day, the rabbis, the religious teachers of the day, um, had agreed that your responsibility as a religious person was to forgive someone three times. Because this this, this was a question that exercised the minds of many people. And the rabbis came to the conclusion, apparently, that you had to forgive someone three times. So don't be hard on Peter. Peter is processing in his mind all this stuff that Jesus has been giving them. And he's gone off and he's thought about it. And he's thinking, so what does this mean in the area, for example, of forgiveness? Everybody says three times. That's normal. So Jesus isn't going to say three times. He's worked that out. And I think as he processes this in his mind, he comes up with the number seven. Seven's a number that has a lot of significance in Scripture. And I think that's the one he goes for. And I think that's why he comes testing this out with Jesus. I think he feels he's probably sussed this one. That as he's processed this, it's not three as everybody says, it's got to be more than that. Lord, would it happen to be seven? Well... Peter when Jesus talks about converting and changing and becoming like a little child who has no status in the community and all the rest and you need to completely rethink things he's not joking the answer is no Peter you're still much too conservative keep on forgiving let's try 77 I don't think for one minute Jesus is setting the number I think what Jesus is doing is stretching Peter There's a very interesting thing that a lot of people who write on this subject draw to your attention. Um, There's an interesting passage in Genesis chapter 4. You might like to come back with me and have a look at it because a lot of people think that Jesus is stretching Peter um, and using this Old Testament situation as a kind of model for stretching him and what he's doing here. Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. You may be familiar with that story of how Cain kills his brother. And you may be familiar with the part of the story where the Lord confronts Cain in verse 10. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. And I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, I don't know that Peter was thinking of what the Lord had said to Cain about seven times. He would uh, punish those who would touch Cain. But I think it is quite possible, as a lot of people suggest, that when Jesus is answering Peter, he's stretching Peter by taking Peter back to what follows in this passage. Because we discover that, I think it is, um, the great, great, great grandson of Cain is a man called Lamech. And in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 4 and verse 19, we read that Lamech married two women. And later on, we read in verse 23 that Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech... 77 times. Now most people who write on these things reckon that what Jesus is doing is taking that Old Testament model where Lamech, who's a nasty piece of work it seems to me, uh, who is proud of the fact that when a young man attacked him he was stronger than the young man and he killed him. And he comes and he boasts to his wife, his wives rather, you know, if God's protecting Cain seven times, Lamech can protect himself 77 times. So much greater. And there seems to be a play on that going on in Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you need to be stretched a lot more. And you need to be stretched in a positive way, unlike Lamech and his 77 assurances to himself and his wives of vengeance and revenge. Because that's what's lying at the heart of this question about forgiveness. Vengeance and revenge. So it seems that what's happening here is that Peter is being stretched. And really what's happening is that Jesus is trying to get Peter to be consistent in his thinking. Peter is clearly working at it. He's not being stupid about this. He's coming out of a situation that's very different where three would have been good, seven would have been amazing, but 77 is just ridiculous. But it's not if it's consistency that matters. Of trying to live under the standards of the kingdom of heaven, under the rule of God in a different kind of way. So let's look at verses 23 to 34 where Jesus develops this idea and talks about the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Now you mustn't go trying to draw too many parallels in these stories. There's key points that Jesus is trying to get across here. But don't go trying to look in every detail for what it's representing because the the story is told in ridiculous terms, deliberately. Translated into our language and our currency one commentator said that the amount that this servant owes the king is about a billion dollars. Vast sum of money. And it's crazy that any king would allow a servant to run up a debt like that. What on earth has he been doing? Where has he been that's such a huge debt? So let's not get too much into the details. It's exaggerated. It's ridiculous. But it's ridiculous and exaggerated to make a strong point. So here's this servant. And he owes his master a billion dollars and uh, the the, the master decides to sort the things out so he brings him back in and he makes this ridiculous statement uh, and he says fell on his knees before him verse 26 be patient with me and I will pay back everything likely not likely there's no way he's going to pay a vast sum like this back if that's the debt he's got himself into everything about this story is taken to the extreme but what's also extreme is the master's response his master's response is to forgive him everything. Well, the taxes must have been coming in well if this was meant to be a literal story. But it's again, it's exaggerated to make this point strongly. And Jesus says that in this story, the master says, forget it. Forget all of it. You're released from all of it. So the, this guy goes out, the servant goes out, and he finds another servant who owes him the equivalent of about a fiver. One of these people who does this for a living and works all these kinds of things out um, says that he, it's some uh, ridiculously small sum in, in contrast that is required here of the other person. So let's say a fiver. gives you a sense of it. And he meets someone who owes him a fiver. He owes nothing. He's clear. He's got away with it. And he grabs this person by the throat and he starts shaking them because he wants his fiver out of them. And what does the person say to him? Exactly the same thing he said to his master. Exactly the same thing. And what's the response? For the sake of a fiver, this wretched person takes him off and has him thrown into prison until he pays. And what that probably in the context would mean when the disciples hear that is, until his family are sold off into slavery and the money is raised to pay is probably the meaning behind what's going on here. Well, it's those who are watching see the injustice of this and they report it back to the master. And the master calls him back in. And the master insists that he pay back every last bit of it, which is never going to happen. And so he is handed over to the torturers. He's handed over to the jailers. And that's the end of the story for this particular guy. And then Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, before you run away at the thought of a kingdom that sanctions torture and get all literal and thinking about all the details that are in here, bear in mind this story is full of exaggeration to make a point. And what Jesus is saying is that the defining characteristic of God's dealing with the subjects, the people, the members of the kingdom of heaven is vast, incalculable mercy. That's what Jesus is saying. The way you're dealt with, In the kingdom of heaven. The way your relationship with God. Is constructed. Is one that is marked by vast. Incalculable mercy. Which is expressed in forgiveness. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is. It's not three times. It's 77 times. It's more than you could ever imagine. Because the way God has dealt with you. Is more than you can ever fully understand. Or imagine. Whatever your brother or sister in the kingdom has done, a fiver's worth of damage, given the nature of your own sinful rebellion against God, is hardly worth worrying about. Essentially what Jesus seems to be saying, when you said this in the context of kingdom, is that to refuse to address this issue of mercy, as it's demonstrated in forgiveness, is essentially treason in the kingdom of heaven. Treason is the act of betraying one's sovereign or country. And Jesus seems to be saying really that the abuse of forgiveness and the refusal to show mercy in the kingdom of heaven is like the betrayal of God. And whether the abuse of God's forgiveness is expressed in an unforgiving attitude or a lack of mercy or a return to immorality, betrayal of God is. And the demands of the kingdom of heaven is really a bit like treason. The kingdom of heaven doesn't have an anthem. Jesus didn't write any tunes that we know of. The kingdom of heaven doesn't have a flag. It doesn't have a border or territory. It doesn't have a crest or a coat of arms. But if it did have an anthem, it would be full of words to do with mercy and forgiveness. If it did have a flag... Some artist somewhere would have been commissioned to demonstrate on a flag the concept of mercy and forgiveness. If it did have a coat of arms, it would demonstrate mercy and God's forgiveness. And to abuse God's mercy would be to dishonor the anthem. It would be to desecrate the flag. It would be to disfigure the coat of arms. It would be treason. Truthfully, this is one of the reasons why following Jesus leaves me weary. I am in constant need of forgiveness, and I know that. I am utterly transformed by God's forgiveness, and I understand that. I am defined and reshaped by God's mercy to me. I know that. And I recognize that that is the anthem of the kingdom of heaven. That is the flag under which I place myself. That is what life in the kingdom of heaven is about. And sometimes it's so demanding. Sometimes to extend it to others just leaves you feeling weary out of our sinfulness. Which takes me to the last verse. And the heading I have for this is quite simply sincerity. So consistency is the first thing that I think Jesus is really pushing Peter on. To, to be consistent with his thinking about relationships in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, mercy and forgiveness is what Jesus is developing here in this passage. In the story that he tells about the master and his servants. And verse 35 I think stands on its own. And for me the issue here is sincerity. You would think that there's more than enough in this chapter. But there's one last sting in the tail. Jesus knows that Peter, like you and like me, adults that we are, can all have the child in the playground mentality. Jesus saw it worked out with his disciples. It's the kind of thing I'm thinking where there's a fight breaks out in the playground. And the teacher comes and separates the people and uh, says, right now, everybody's friends in this school, shake hands. Or worse, at home as used to happen to myself and my brother, where we were fighting the peace out. You know, and mother comes home and finds us and says, enough, you don't fight like that in this family. Give each other a hug. Oh, gross. You know, I'll stop fighting. I'll eat dirt. But don't ask me to hug him. But what the teacher and what the mother are doing is they're trying to end the war. They're trying to go beyond policing the violence. To bring some reconciliation and probably, truthfully, anything for a quiet life. But we all know that the handshake can be given with venom in the eye. We all know that the hug can be managed as we gag on resentment. And try to resist the desire to sink your teeth into his ear. We all know the self-loathing that goes with the externals of mercy and forgiveness.